Greetings once again in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We trust that you'll enjoy our lesson today on the Theological Seminar of the Air, which deals with the Spirit-filled life. This series of lessons, as the past several weeks, have dealt primarily with a subject in systematic theology and dogmatic theology, which we call pneumatology. Pneumatology being the study of the spirit world, and in this particular case, the work of the Holy Spirit, because after all, we're not yet through with our study of theology proper, which deals with the Godhead. Our series of lessons began with a study of God the Father in the Godhead, a proper subject of theology, and next we dealt with the Lord Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, and this series of studies following the heading of Christology. We've now been dealing for several weeks with the third person in the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, who is a person, and this properly comes under the study of pneumatology. We shall wait a while and deal with other subjects in pneumatology, the spirit world, under the heading of demonology and eschatology, the study of the unclean spirits, and the study that has to do with the activity of unclean spirits in the last days. On this particular lesson, we are talking about the spirit-filled life of the believer, and today's broadcast, and our next broadcast, will deal with about 25 minutes of material on the spirit-filled life of the child of God. <clears throat> now, at conversion, the believer receives the justified life. He is declared righteous. Now, this is very plain from Romans and Galatians. The reason why the people who believe in the ancient heresy of baptismal regeneration only take two verses out of Galatians and Romans is because they can't stand the content of Galatians and Romans. The only verse out of the book of Romans that the heretic or the pagan will ever quote is the verse in Romans 6 that deals with spirit baptism, which the pagan converts to water baptism. By the same token, the only verse in Galatians that the pagan will take for baptismal regeneration is the verse in Galatians 3, which has nothing to do with water baptism either. Therefore, the outstanding mark of the unsaved elder or unsaved preacher is the fact that he avoids Romans and Galatians like the very plague of death. And with the exception of these two verses extracted from their context from Galatians 3 and Romans 6, the unsaved man who is counting on works and water baptism to justify him can never teach the book of Romans or the book of Galatians. As a matter of fact, the book of Galatians, the book of Romans, are impossible for an unsaved elder to teach because both of these books plainly teach justification by faith, salvation by faith, eternal security by faith, and the believer declared righteous and his sins imputed to Jesus Christ with Christ's righteousness imputed to him. The problem the unsaved elder has is how to figure out a way to get around justification by faith where the born-again person has been declared to have the righteousness of God himself. Notice this in Romans chapter 4, verse 5. And this while all unsaved elders like James chapter 2, written to the twelve tribes of Israel. This also accounts why Kenneth Taylor's so-called living Bible has changed the words of James 1, 1 and 2, so as to make you think that James 2 applied to a believer. This false doctrine is called heresy by the church historians throughout the ages, and it constitutes one of the greatest blasphemies against the Holy Spirit ever carried out by people who profess to be getting the gospel to other people through translations. <laughs> Nothing could be any funnier or more ridiculous or more outrageous than the criminal activities of these people who will change the Bible to make it teach a lie. James 1, verse 1, was certainly not written to any Christian that you've met or are going to meet in the next 400 years. So 
so the verse had to be changed, and it has been altered in the so-called Living Bible, which, of course, we refer to reverently as the dead paraphrase. Now, the believer received a justified life. He is declared to be righteous. This is followed by a consecrated life from the acknowledge of the Lord's ownership of our lives. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, we read, We're not our own. We are bought with a price. Therefore, we have been redeemed. We are bond slaves. We belong to the Lord. We yield our lives and wills to the Lord if we're right with the Lord at all. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 to 12, uh, 2. And this is followed by the empty life when we cast aside evil and selfishness. Now, the unsaved that really teaching the water dog theology of the Lord's Navy makes the foolish mistake of thinking that if you repent, believe, confess, and be baptized and clean up your life, that'll save you. What this heretic has not realized is there are many people in the Bible who believe and are baptized like Simon the sorcerer, and who repent and confess like Judas Iscariot, and who repent, confess, and believe and be baptized, clean out their lives, and then murder Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the problem a self-righteous elder has is very simple. Being an unsaved man, he can't understand any so-called plan of salvation, so he invents his own. Uh, these serious rascals have decided that since a man can repent, confess, and believe and be baptized and go to hell, that therefore the Christian can lose his salvation and go to hell. <laughs> this is what they call Disneyland exegesis or Mickey Mouse theology. And it's interesting for the uh, people who are superstitious enough to believe it, but for the serious student of the Bible and systematic and dogmatic and biblical theology, it's a lot of childish nonsense. When a man cleans up his life and empties his life of sin and evil, seven spirit can enter him, and he can be worse off than he was before. The empty life is not the saved life unless the righteous of Jesus Christ hasn't been imputed to that sinner, and his standing in the Lord is that of sinless perfection. You cannot live in a vacuum. The Christian must be filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's the commandment in Ephesians 5.18. Be not drunk with wine when it is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. You'll notice there is never any commandment anywhere in the New Testament for anybody to be baptized with the Spirit. There isn't any place in the entire New Testament where an imperative command is given to be baptized with the Spirit, because every believer has been baptized with the Spirit when he received Jesus Christ. The commandment is not be baptized with the Spirit. The commandment is after the Holy Spirit has put you in the body of Christ, be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. <clears throat> Somebody told a famous preacher one time about a congregation that disciplined an elder for being drunk. And he said, what would you do with an elder that is not spirit-filled? I mean, both things are mentioned in the same verse. That is, the sin of not being filled with the Spirit amounts to the sin of being drunk. The same verse says, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Notice that both uh, commandments are the, in the imperative. Be not drunk with wine is an imperative followed by, but be filled with the Spirit and imperative. And what this famous preacher was saying in effect, and he was absolutely right in saying it was, if a Christian is not filled with the Spirit, he's committed just as much a sin against God as if he'd gone out and gotten drunk. And of course, for this standard, most Baptists are in a terrible pickle, and that's why they've fallen sucker to the charismatic movement. They've fallen, uh, they've fallen prey to a bunch of dummies who've been going around talking about the Holy Ghost, so much the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost. These believers who are saved in the body of Christ don't know the Holy Ghost is in them. They're not filled with the Holy Ghost, so they fall and pray to a bunch of people who are no more filled with the Holy Ghost than they are. They just talk about it more. At conversion, the believer is complete in Jesus Christ, and this is so apparent from Colossians, 
You couldn't miss it unless you're an unsaved man trying to pass off your religion as the genuine thing when you are nothing but a phony. In the book of Colossians, you're taught that the Christian is complete in Christ, and in him Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him. There is nothing missing in your life when you get saved. And if you're not filled with the Holy Ghost, there's one of two things wrong. Number one, you are not praying for God to fill you with the Holy Spirit. Or number two, if you are, you are not yielding to the Holy Spirit in your life. As far as the baptism of the Holy Ghost is concerned, the Holy Ghost baptized you into Jesus Christ and immersed you into his body the day you got saved. And the Holy Spirit, the third person of Godhead, came in and indwelled your body, which is a vessel purchased and redeemed, which belongs to the Lord. Now, there's the difference between studying the Word of God seriously and rightly dividing the Word of Truth, and all this Acts 2.38 and James 2 baloney you hear preached by unsaved elders who are no more saved than Judas Iscariot and have no more idea what they're talking about than the worst communists in the common turn in Moscow. You are complete in Christ when you receive him. He's all you need. And you're told the Holy Spirit is the Lord in the Second Corinthians chapter 3, and the Lord is that Spirit. Now read it. Don't get mad at me. I get so put out with all you babies getting upset and get mad because you followed some dummy in the blind ditch and blown a couple of thousand dollars in Christian education down a rat hole and never came out knowing enough about the Bible to teach you that education Bible school. Don't get mad at me. Kick thyself, friend. Get in front of a mirror and boot yourself around the room. By the fact of conversion, every believer possesses the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 16, and Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12 and 13 tells you that when you got saved, friend, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And if you don't believe that, it's because, number one, you've got devil in your life or you're following a devil who professed to be a Christian. Illustration to be made by the occupancy of a house. The Holy Spirit may be kept as a guest in the parlor, but never given control of the kitchen, bedroom, or storeroom. As the famous preacher said, the resident should be present. Now, as we yield the control of our lives, the Holy Spirit fills us more and more with himself. And this is what Paul meant in the book of Galatians when he said he prayed for Christ to be formed in the believer. The Holy Spirit may reside, but not preside. In Luke 11:13, we read, How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? And we are taught to pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit. Luke was written long after Pentecost, and Pentecost spoke of the indwelling Christ, while Luke 11:13 pleads for the filling and fullness of the Holy Spirit. Is this a crisis experience separate from conversion? It may not be, but in many cases it is. And this is why some people are foolish enough to think that when they get surrendered, but that's when they're baptized with the Holy Ghost. These people who use 30 versions of the Bible in order to prove their own point have rejected the Word of God on the basis of their experience. And these young, ecumenical, charismatic, emotional, unstable Christians are always judging the infallible Word of God by their feelings. Of course, this is very foolish and very unwise. The Bible saw the cradle of all of the books and they'll see their graves. And this book with its doctrine was well established before your great-great-great-grandmother was born, and if the Lord tarries, it will still be in effect after your great-great-grandchildren are dead. And you're very foolish indeed to judge the book of Acts, James, and Hebrews by a feeling you had after you got saved. That's very unwise. That's Satan's realm. 
When you got saved, God saved you and gave you his righteousness and justified you and declared you to be righteous and put his Holy Spirit within you. But surrendering to the Holy Spirit in his leadership to your life may be, as they say, a horse of a different color. Sometimes the crisis in a man's life is not when he received Jesus Christ, but when he comes to a place where after he's saved, the Holy Spirit wants to bring him to a point of surrender to where he'll submit his will to God's will. This naturally is the most dangerous place in the experience of the child of God. The most dangerous place is this matter of submission of will, because nobody would like to have control of your will any better than Satan. Therefore, the most dangerous experience in the Christian's life is after he gets saved and receives Christ, the most dangerous time in his life is when a cult or a sect that professes to believe the Bible and quotes Scripture approaches him and tries to get him to think that submitting his will to God's will means an emotional experience. This is the most dangerous point in the new baby's life, and this is the place that most babies die as soon as they're born spiritually. And this explains why the cults or sects that profess to be Christians and quote the Bible never pounce on a sinner until right after he gets saved. Now, if you're a soul winner, you know this operation. We have throughout America today four church groups. You can't name them over the radio because with the equal time and fair time practice, only left-wing wing radicals have equal time. By that I mean this. I mean if the Pope got on TV nationwide or worldwide on Christmas Day and got 30 minutes to show the world what he thought a Christian was, no right-wing Bible-believing Christian would be granted five minutes in rebuttal when that program was over. By that I mean this. If a newscast or telecast came on at 10 o'clock and you were told that Christians and Muslims were fighting against each other in Beirut or Lebanon, when that program was over, there is no Bible-believing Christian in the world who would have five minutes to explain that a Greek Orthodox soldier is not necessarily a Christian. You see what I mean, Jelly Bean? The equal time or practice adopted by the FCC several years ago was adopted to prevent the dissemination of truth. And it was adopted so that any left-wing radical could get across a lie without being answered, and no right-wing conservative could get across the truth without losing his time or the station being sued. Now, that's how the thing was tried out. For example, if a newscast came on at 6 o'clock and you were told the Irish Republican Army had been attacked by British imperialists, there isn't one Bible-believing Christian in the United States could come on after that newscast was over and explain that the British imperialist was an army sent to North Ireland to protect Bible-believing Christians from an army composed of people from one church. You see what I mean, Jellybean? Or will you dig me later, alligator? The equal time law was practiced to prevent the dissemination of the truth. So when I talk about four religious groups, you're going to have to guess who they are. But there are four religious groups in the town where you live who spend their time getting on new Christians and destroying that Christian's faith and the Bible as authority and making that Christian think that a doctrinal system or an emotional experience is the authority you judge the Bible by. There are four in your hometown. 
and they have nothing to do with the Holy Spirit of God. Now the disciples were to come in Jerusalem waiting for Pentecost, Luke 24, 49, because Pentecost was not an experience. It was a Jewish feast day. Acts 2, 4 was the fulfillment of this promise when the Spirit came to abide. So the Holy Spirit picked a Jewish feast day, one Jewish feast day in 2,000 years, to grant that experience. So consequently, of the Pentecost that had taken place in this earth, and that had been well over 1,900 Pentecosts, only one of them was accompanied by the coming of the Holy Spirit. Every believer now has the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit does not control each believer. The believer still has his stubborn, rebellious will in his old nature. He may pray or not. He may give or not. He may witness or not. He may surrender or not. That is, the born-again child of God can obey or resist or grieve the Holy Spirit. And we talked in our past two lessons about the sins against the Holy Spirit. The crowning act of faith is for the believer to abdicate his life to the Holy Spirit, and at this point of absolute surrender is where Satan desires your life. In other words, the crowning act of faith is for the saved sinner to turn his life over to the Holy Spirit, and all the devil has to do to get the rest of your life as a Christian is to counterfeit the Holy Spirit. It's that simple. As soon as the believer has gotten saved and is ready to dedicate and consecrate his entire life to the Holy Spirit, all Satan has to do is counterfeit the Holy Spirit, and he has obtained the rest of the life on earth of a child of God. This accounts for the strange phenomena the believers see in America today, where there are more than a million professions of faith in Christ every year, and yet after 20 years, with 20 million professions of faith, you can't find in America 500,000 Christians who are doing what the Bible tells them to do. And this explains it. You never met a Campbellite in your life who won people of Jesus Christ. He won them to a doctrinal system which he extracted by taking Acts 2.38 out of the context. You see what I mean? With over a million professions of faith every year in the great independent fundamental Baptist churches of America and many of the local independent uh, non-denominational churches and the great campaigns carried on by Billy Graham and Jack Van Impey and the tremendous TV ministries of Jerry Falwell and the tremendous church ministries of Jack Hiles and others, you cannot find in America, if you look with a flashlight, one-tenth of those who profess faith in Jesus Christ who come anywhere near half the standards required by the New Testament. What's the problem? The problem is of a million people who profess Christ every year, 800,000 of them get knocked out of belief in the Word of God, the obedience to the Word of God, within two years after they're saved. The infilling of the Holy Spirit is received when the believer consciously recognizes the Holy Spirit as being in full control of his life, completely governing every detail of his life, and the Holy Spirit will not lead a believer contrary to what the Holy Spirit said in the Word that he inspired and preserved. When the Holy Spirit wrote in Acts 2.38 that all the converts were Jews or Jewish proselytes, when the Holy Spirit told you there wasn't any Christian present in Acts 2.3.4.5 and no Christian show up till Acts chapter 11, the Holy Spirit would not lead you to accept Acts 2.38 as a spurious plan of salvation. That's the work of an unclean spirit. 
when the Holy Spirit showed you that no convert at Pentecost ever talked in tongues a day in his life, and showed you that in Acts chapter 2, where none of the 3,000 spoke with tongues, the Holy Spirit didn't lead you to believe that tongues was a sign of your conversion or the filling of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit wrote 1 Corinthians 14 and didn't mention the word baptism one time in the entire chapter on tongues, the Holy Spirit who wrote that chapter and preserved would not lead you to think that an unknown tongue had anything to do with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And when the Holy Ghost, who you're surrendered to, wrote Acts 2 and preserved it, and made it clear to you from Acts chapter 2 that there wasn't any unknown tongue found anywhere in the chapter, you can bet your bottom dollar any man that teaches you that unknown tongues are a sign of the baptism of the Holy Ghost, that man has not surrendered his life to the third person of the Godhead who wrote and preserved that book. He is working in conjunction with another spirit, and it is not the third person of the Godhead. Now, the filling of the Holy Spirit is a command to be obeyed. It's not a wonderful luxury for people like Stephen and Paul. It ought to be the experience of every believer. Ephesians 5.18 is not an optional commandment. It's mandatory. Be filled with the Spirit. And the picture in Ephesians 5.18 is a contrast between a man with an influence completely erected by another power, a heavenly power, the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Peter was filled with the Spirit in Acts 2.4 and in Acts 4.8. And again in Acts 4.31. Notice in Acts 4.8, when the believer is filled with the Spirit, he does not speak in tongues. Notice in Acts 4.31, when the believer is filled with the Holy Spirit, he does not speak in tongues. Notice the outstanding characteristic of the Spirit-filled believer, Acts 4.8 and Acts 4.31, is the fact that he preaches the Word of God boldly, publicly, to the enemies of God. This means that every heretic and every sect and cult in America who is going around and preaching only in their pulpits, and then are afraid to publicly take a stand on the street and in the market and they open the community in which they live, have never known or experienced the filling of the Holy Spirit. When a man is filled with the Holy Spirit, he takes his religion outdoors and scatters Jesus Christ all over the community. He doesn't play it safe and close to his vest behind a pulpit in the building. Everyone needs the filling of the Holy Spirit. Every believer in Jesus Christ needs the filling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's filling is for apostles, preachers, teachers, fathers, mothers, young people, laborers, bricklayers, contract contractors, truck drivers, ditch diggers, dishwashers. Every Christian I'm talking to needs the filling of the Holy Spirit for your own benefit in order to be the best possible Christian, and you cannot obtain the Lord's will or his blessing regarding character and service without it. The filling of the Holy Spirit is an individual blessing, and it's a blessing to your community because men are saved, and the devilment in your community is put down. The greatest good that street preaching accomplishes in any town is it upsets people. It disturbs the peace. And if America's peace ever needs to be disturbed by the right thing, it needs to be disturbed by the right thing now. God knows every community in America today has been disturbed by homosexuals trying to get at your little children and they'll do it, if they can, by women taking over men's jobs and usurping authority in the home out of a plea of equal rights, when what they want is control. Who are you trying to kid your grandmother? 
You ever hear any Bible-believing fundamental preacher ever get equal times after a discussion on a Tonight Show about gay liberation or women liberation? You never will. The equal rights law or fair times practice law never gives equal time to a Bible position. And that is why you people who spend your lives in front of a television can only wind up as left-wing mongrel socialists. You won't have any other choice. There has one, been one 60-minute discussion program on CBS, NBC, ABC in the last 20 years where equal time was granted to anybody of the opposite persuasion. And there never will be. And where a discussion panel comes up, what you are given is the extreme left and the moderate left. You're never given the center, let alone the right. <laughs> the right is out of the question. You're given a radical left wing and a moderate left wing, and then you're told you're getting both sides. Now, it's how the snow drifts, honey. Now, the Holy Spirit filling a believer will cause him to take Jesus Christ and scatter him all over the community, knock on doors, witness in the factory, witness in the shop, witness in the mill, witness across the dry goods counter, witness in the hotel lobby, witness in the cafeteria, witness the restaurant, and not to the blibber blabber, hobbly gobbly, the hobbly gobbly, ostler, shantan, tied, ply, blubber blabbers. It'll cause him to brag about Jesus Christ. And if you remember our lesson in the Holy Ghost from four or five lessons back, you'll know the Lord Jesus Christ said to himself, the Holy Spirit would not come to speak of himself. Therefore, the out-and-out personal witness of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit for a believer, is never a witness to ecumenical movements or love or the Holy Ghost. It is a witness to the crucifixion, death, burial, and blood atonement of Jesus Christ. And that's how you know 90% of every modern movement, talking about ecumenical or love movements or sharing experience, are fake movements by an unclean spirit. Because they do not magnify the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that is the gospel, and that's what the Holy Spirit came to testify of in this age. The Holy Spirit illuminates our minds, warms our affections, purges our consciences, energizes our will until we surrender, and he is able to keep us surrendered to the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this completes our lesson today on the Spirit-filled life, or should we say half our lesson. On the next broadcast, we will continue this great subject, the Spirit-filled life of the believer. On the next broadcast, we'll talk about why the church needs every member to be filled with the Holy Spirit, why the world expects the believers to be spirit-filled, and then a very important subject, the conditions of being filled with the Holy Spirit and the results of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And we'll take up these matters in a detailed study of the Bible, verse by verse, on the conditions for the filling of the Spirit of God and the results of being filled with the Holy Spirit. We trust you'll join us again on next week's broadcast, or whenever the station schedules broadcast. And if you haven't heard our first 50 lessons, they will be available to anybody who can uh, supply the need and put the broadcast in the air. Our broadcasts are supplied by the love and concern and burden of concerned individuals or churches in the area in which you live. We make no money from the broadcast, take up no offerings from the broadcast, receive no donations from the broadcast, require no mail from the broadcast, send out no prayer requests or prayer letters for the broadcast, and operate entirely by faith trusting God to burden the hearts of his people to put the broadcast on. 
It's been broadcast number 50 on our 51st broadcast. We'll talk about the conditions for being filled with the Holy Spirit and the results of the Spirit-filled life. Until then, may the Lord bless you and good day.